In keeping with the theme of looking at Kentucky a century ago, I thought we might talk about one other event that occurred in 1923. And I'd like to do a more thorough episode on the location of this event later. So for today, I'm just going to give a brief history on this facility and then get right to the events of 1923 and then we'll revisit the topic as a whole later. And nothing says happy holidays like talking about prison, right? (laughs) No, I know I could have saved this for the new year, but it's fresh on my mind and I want to talk about it. So I understand if you're in a holly jolly mood and you want to save this for the new year, you're not going to hurt my feelings. But I think most Americans can agree the United States prison system is deeply flawed. Overcrowding, drugs, poor hygiene, violence, etc. But a hundred years ago, it was worse. I mean, you had all of those factors back then, but amplified and tack on the lack of regulation about hard labor. Very rarely were prisons heated or cooled. Um, The water wasn't always very clean. You had an incredibly disorganized parole system, if they had one at all, so people could be eligible for decades and never even be considered. Those are just a few of the additional challenges one might face if convicted of a crime in 1923. And if you were black or poor or another minority, your situation was even worse. I should give a quick warning here. Uh, This episode will get a little gruesome at times, Um, It's pretty depressing, and at the end, it's quite frustrating. So again, if you are like on your way to a Christmas party, maybe save this one for later. Now, in 1884, the Kentucky legislature passed an act for a new branch of the Kentucky state penal system to be built in Eddyville, Kentucky. Welcome to episode 136, the 1923 Eddyville Prison Standoff. Eddyville, the town, was settled around 1798 and named for the Eddies in the nearby Cumberland River. The site where they chose to build Eddyville, the prison, is about three miles from the current town of Eddyville. It sits atop a hill overlooking the river. Construction began the year the act was passed, 1884, and was completed in 1890. They used massive limestone blocks quarried from a site further down the river and Italian stonemasons were brought in to help erect the original structure. You've probably seen pictures of this main building. It looks like a castle. It's pretty, um, it's a little ominous, but it's now surrounded by several more modern looking buildings. Um, It's like this massive compound now, and it's definitely nothing to look at, but I guess prisons aren't really supposed to be pretty. Now, in the early 1900s, legislators were starting to come to terms with overcrowding, and they thought one way to solve the problem would be to separate inmates by age and how serious their offenses were. So in 1910, they passed a reform bill to do just that. The Frankfurt Penitentiary was kind of it at the time, and that's where the overcrowding problem was. So they sent some of the inmates from Frankfurt to Eddyville. And on top of that, Frankfurt did not want the electric chair. So they also sent the electric chair to Eddyville. And in 1912, it was official, 
The Frankfurt location would be the Kentucky State Reformatory, and the Eddyville location would be the Kentucky State Penitentiary. So the way I understand the difference, the Frankfurt location being the reformatory was for younger inmates or people who had committed less severe crimes who the state believed could be reformed, whereas the penitentiary, root there being penance, was for more serious criminals, those less likely to be reformed. This was made glaringly obvious by the fact that the electric chair went to Eddyville. Um, And of course, the electric chair was Old Sparky, which, by the way, is not unique to Kentucky. It's not that clever of a name, okay? Several states use that name for their electric chairs. But yes, we had Old Sparky at Eddyville, and it was first used for an execution there in July of 1911 on a man named James Buckner, who had been convicted of murdering a police officer. In July of 1928, Kentucky set a record for number of executions in a single day when they electrocuted eight people, one after the other, throughout the day. I'll talk more about executions in a later Eddieville episode, but before I get into today's story, I want to talk a little bit more about prison conditions in the 20s and kind of how the judicial system worked. So in 1920, the Board of Charities and Corrections stepped in and questioned the entire parole process. And it turns out they had been completely neglecting parole-eligible inmates in Kentucky state prisons. They found a backlog of 350 inmates that were eligible, some of whom had been eligible for over a decade. And the state in response to that was like, oh, maybe we should hire some parole officers. So for the first time in 1920, three men and one woman were hired specifically as parole officers for the entire state of Kentucky. And then a year later, the Board of Charities and Corrections mandated that no person could be paroled if they were illiterate, which of course is problematic, but it also led to several inmates enrolling in prison schools. Now, in that time period, convicts are put to work. They are manufacturing items like chairs, shoes, shirts, and brooms. At Eddyville, they could make up to 10 cents a day, minus, of course, fines for misconduct or bad work. And after testing is conducted at the Frankfurt Reformatory in 1921, it's revealed that 41% of inmates had syphilis, so that's bad. In 1923, Eddyville was operating at a loss of almost $28,000 despite receipts of over $128,000. The situation monetarily is even worse at Frankfurt, so the prisons are costing the state money. They were crowded, they were unsanitary, officers were abusive, and Even though we by then understood the need for a separate facility for the mentally ill, we just didn't have the means to do that properly. So a lot of times, severely mentally ill people would just be thrown in with the general population. The staff at these prisons were similar to those of places like Lakeland Asylum, underpaid and overworked. They really didn't have enough employees. This resulted in very similar outcomes to what we saw at Lakeland. 
Um, Also, people escaped all the time. It was a big place. There were just too many opportunities for people to sneak out. Now, the beginning of 1923 was a fairly normal year for Eddieville. In June, 12 inmates were granted parole. These crimes ranged from murder to chicken stealing. There had been a recent ruling that all newly convicted inmates would be sent to Eddieville because Frankfurt was getting so crowded that year, but the only exception would be first-time offenders or people that were married. They would be allowed to stay at Frankfurt. On June 15, 1923, 23-year-old James Powers was executed via the electric chair. He maintained his innocence of the murder he was accused of committing until his last breath. And I'd like to read you part of an article from that day to give you an idea of how that process would go in 1923. At 12.15 a.m., a solemn group of men assembled in the office of John B. Chilton, warden. After a word from the warden, the march to the death chamber was begun. Through silent but well-lighted corridors, the little procession wended its way, while the chirping of crickets disturbed the midnight silence outside the big gray prison. Past death row, where Powers knelt in prayer beside Reverend Joseph P. Welsh of Hopkinsville, into the death chamber, where the 15, including deputies, the prison physician, the warden, and two newspaper men seated themselves. Powers entered at 1225. He shook hands with Murphy, saying goodbye with a smile. He did the same to newspaper men, several deputy wardens, and Reverend Welsh, and seated himself in the death chair, still smiling. After the death cap was put on, Reverend Welsh said prayers for the dying. At 1228, the current was turned on, 2,000 volts shooting through Powers' body. After 30 seconds, the current was shut off for 10 seconds, then on again for 30 seconds more. At 12.35, Dr. D.J. Travis, prison physician, pronounced Powers dead. The body was sent on its way back to Covington today to the home of Powers' grandmother. Powers died for a murder in which no one contended he fired the fatal bullet. Lee was slain by one of four bandits who followed him, together with his father, Harry Lee, his mother and sister, from their theater. They were carrying home $300 in receipts. Powers said he did not fire the shot. George Sanders, convicted after Powers was held guilty, denied being present. Isaac McKnight and Ray Rogers, still awaiting trial, turned state's evidence. They testified they did not know who fired that shot. In June of 1923, there was an altercation in the shirt factory that resulted in the death of a 24-year-old stabbed by a 21-year-old. In July, 13 prisoners were transferred from the Jefferson County Jail, including one former policeman who had been charged and convicted of detaining a woman. In August, our friend Mrs. Wagner from a previous episode escaped out the kitchen door of the Eddyville prison In September, seven more inmates were paroled, and again, their charges ranged from chicken stealing to manslaughter. 
Nothing terribly out of the ordinary at the prison until early fall. On October 3rd, 1923, the front page of the Paducah Sun read, Convicts hold penitentiary. Eddyville prisoners kill guard. Battle to death is underway at the prison. Based on initial reports, it appeared that at least four or five prisoners, led by a man named Monty Tex Walters, were responsible for this riot. During their escape attempt, they shot and killed a guard, and another, uh, Mattingly, was mortally wounded. According to physicians who recently arrived on the scene, he had been shot through the liver and only had a short time to live. Governor Morrow called on the National Guard at Hopkinsville to assist in putting a stop to the riot. The prisoners were armed and barricaded in the prison dining room. Mattingly was still in the prison in a position where they couldn't get him out without getting shot at by the inmates. And another guard, William Gilbert, made it out and was taken to the hospital, but things weren't looking good for him either. A fourth guard was believed to be injured or dead, but the details weren't clear yet to the press. Initial reports also said a kitchen employee was injured. Prison guards who made it safely out said the only way these guys were going to give up would be if they got hungry enough after several days or if they bombed the dining room. It was a standoff. Whenever law enforcement outside saw shadows or movement in the dining room, they would fire off some shots and the inmates inside would fire back. Oddly enough, even though the papers are already calling this a riot, the article also says, quote, the remaining convicts are quiet and the prison is proceeding under the usual routine. So as intense as this situation was, the prison as a whole was still operating as usual. Authorities believed this entire thing was being led by Tex Walters, who was a man from Louisville who had been convicted of murdering a dairyman during a robbery and had been sentenced to life in prison. Since his nickname was Tex, that's what I'm going to call him for the rest of the story. Two others thought to be with him were Lawrence Griffith of Grave County, Graves County, who'd been convicted of murder, and a man named Harry Furland, also from Jefferson County, also serving a life sentence. At this point, they didn't know for sure exactly how many people were barricaded in the dining room. They were still trying to get a head count from the rest of the prison. And um, I'll post pictures of everybody on social media so you can see what these guys looked like. Harry Furland, one of the inmates, had escaped when he was initially incarcerated at the Frankfurt Reformatory, and that's why he was at Eddyville, because it was the more maximum security prison. The wife of Tex Walters, a woman named Lillian, had recently visited her husband in prison, and authorities were wondering whether maybe she had supplied him with the weapons somehow. But guards insisted they watched their interactions closely, and it was impossible that she had given him any weapons. So they debated whether or not to detain Mrs. Walters, and they decided against it. A short time later, it was made public that the guard who was killed was Hodge Cunningham. I believe he was from Trigg County. He had been shot five times and died just about instantly. The same day, here's what comes out so far about the logistics of what happened. Quote, 
Stories of the uprising indicate that when the 600 convicts in the penitentiary were released from their cells for breakfast this morning, there was some delay in opening the cells of the four men who did the shooting. When they were first released, reports said they immediately opened fire and riddled Cunningham with bullets. The four prisoners ran toward the front entrance to the prison, but for some reason turned from their course and wound up in the penitentiary kitchen, a brick structure in the center of the prison yard. The article goes on. The four convicts continued to shoot intermittently at anybody who showed himself, while the wounded victims of their murderous previous attack cried piteously for aid as they laid on the ground in between the area of the kitchen and the prison proper. Another important detail that quickly emerged was that on a previous occasion, about a year before this, Mrs. Walters had smuggled in saws, and Mr. Walters had used those saws to try to saw out of the prison. He was actually successful. He almost got away until he was shot by a guard while trying to climb a wall. He almost died. He was said to have been very repentant for his actions, and eventually they decided it was okay for him to have visits with his wife again. This is a really intriguing part of the story, especially if you're from Louisville and you like ice cream. So first of all, this is when I learned that the dairyman Tex Walters murdered was named Alex Erler. So if you're from Louisville, or maybe anywhere in Kentucky, I don't know, that name, Erler, is familiar. Erler's ice cream is a staple in our community. They used to have over 20 stores in the area, and Erler used to be the largest dairy producer in the city, not just ice cream, like all dairy products. The company was started by a man originally from Switzerland named Joseph Maria Erler, and his son Alex was born in Louisville in 1872, and he was murdered by Tex Walters in 1921. I was reading some of the reports about this crime, this murder, and it mentioned there was a female accomplice. So the gang, this gang of, of men and one woman, took a taxi to rob Alex Erler while he was in his delivery truck. And while two of the men accosted Alex Erler, Mrs. Walters... Lillian Walters held a gun to the taxi driver's head, according to the taxi driver. She was only 20 years old at the time of this incident, and Tex was 31. So Tex ended up confessing to the murder in exchange for the state dropping their case against his wife as an accessory to the murder. So, so far... Lillian has helped smuggle saws into the building for him to escape, but even before that, she probably helped them murder Alex Erler. Knowing all that, I just think it's fascinating that they continued to let her visit him at Eddyville, and um, yeah. So anyway, leaving Mrs. Walters alone for the moment, let's get back to what was happening at the prison. Prison officials, specifically the warden, really didn't want to storm the building. They didn't, he didn't want to lose any more guards. Um, this is very political. It gets very political. So what they do is surround this building and I'll post a picture of like a diagram of what, where all of these things happened. 
So they surround this building in the middle of the prison yard, and from a safe distance, they kind of just randomly shoot at it, hoping they might eventually hit the guys inside. And that's it until the following day. October 4th, the front page of the Courier-Journal read, Gas bombs are ordered for drive to kill convicts who shot four Eddyville guards. It's reported that an estimated 150 rifle shots had been fired into the building, and there hadn't been any return fire lately, but they believed the guys were still alive inside, maybe just saving their ammunition. The warden, John Chilton, was definitely directing troops and guards to shoot to kill, if possible. The building had the kitchen and laundry in the basement, so they were worried that the guys were hiding out down there where they could not be shot at. Um, One of the guards, W.M. Gilbert, he was 50 years old. He was in surgery on October 4th, not really expected to survive. He was shot in the abdomen. And E.B. Mattingly, 35 years old, was also badly injured and not expected to survive. And then there was W.P. Gillihan. Uh, That guard was shot in the hip, and they couldn't get the bullet out, but he was expected to survive. Gillihan was alert enough to give reporters an interview and explain how all this went down. The rebellion opened in one of the rooms of the shirt factory about eight o'clock, he said. There were between 50 and 100 men in the room. Monty Tex Walters, convicted murderer from Louisville, followed by Harry Furland, Newport, and Lawrence Griffith, Mayfield, seized Lee Shoals, the only guard in the room, bound and gagged him, then with automatic pistols drawn, made a break for the main entrance to the prison grounds, firing at every guard they passed. The guards returned the fire and the convicts were forced to seek shelter in the two-story brick building used for a kitchen and dining room after having shot and killed Hodge Cunningham, Cadiz, one of the guards. The prisoners went to the dining room on the second floor and began firing from the windows. I was on the grounds about 50 yards from the dining room, Mr. Gillihan said. And as I returned to open fire, one of the men got me in the left hip and I fell to the ground. Being unable to rise, I dragged myself around behind a small tank to safety. The convicts yelled, come on out and get us, you hundred dollar men. If you're not afraid, we just dare you. By the following morning, a few dozen National Guardsmen from Hopkinsville had arrived to join the roughly 40 guards who already surrounded the building. Most were on the ground. Some had rifles aimed at the building from atop the towers around the prison walls. They now had a better idea of which men were in there with Tex. It was Harry Furland, initially thought to be 28 years old, from Newport, serving a 16-year sentence for manslaughter, and Lawrence Griffith from Mayfield, serving a life term for murdering his uncle. By now, reporters were pretty sure it was just those three. When the warden was asked where he thought the prisoners got the weapons, he said it was more likely from an inmate who had recently escaped than from the wife during a visit, but he did not give the escaped inmate's name. 
guards from that last visit with Walter's wife were interviewed again, and they said the couple did talk for nearly two hours, but guards were always within earshot, and the couple didn't reveal any plans, and they certainly didn't exchange any items, especially not weapons. So for now, Mrs. Walters was in the clear. She was interviewed by the county jailer, and later he said that she told him, quote, she thought Monty had gone crazy. She said she had no idea he would try any such thing as shooting the guards. She also said that Monty told her he was tired of living in such misery as the prison put on him and had no intention of staying there much longer. Law enforcement from Louisville arrived with tear gas guns, but found it was impossible to use them as they couldn't get close enough. The officers who came to Eddyville from Louisville to help out were actually the officers who arrested Walters when he murdered Alex Erler. So for them, it was very personal. Apparently, when he was convicted, he told one of those officers that he had no intention of remaining at Eddyville. Of these barricaded prisoners, though, Walters actually wasn't the main cause for concern, according to the warden and the guards. Even though he was believed to have orchestrated the escape, his accomplice, Lawrence Griffith, was an intimidating guy. He was six foot, 200 pounds, and believed to have done most of the shooting during the attempted escape. This guy had killed his uncle with a crowbar, and then just two months ago, he had murdered a fellow prisoner by stabbing him to death with a pair of scissors. Around three o'clock on October 4th, a machine gun from a nearby coal mine in Nortonville was hauled in and aimed at the building. One of the interesting things about this is that no other inmates made an attempt to escape or disrupt at all while this was going on. In fact, the warden said later, quote, I am delighted with the conduct of all the other inmates. There was no attempt at a riot, and all of the other convicts returned to the cells promptly when dispatched by the guards without the slightest indication of any disorder. Keep in mind how much pressure this ordeal put on the warden. Not even 24 hours after this news broke, there were articles and papers across the state calling for his removal, saying this was so incredibly negligent. And like I said earlier, it just all turned political very quickly. To make matters worse, Sometime during the day on October 4th, a second guard passed away, E.B. Mattingly. He was 35 years old. Another problem with this whole situation, unrelated to the injured guards, was the fact that nobody could access the kitchen. That's where they were barricaded, so somehow this prison still had to feed 600 people. So the first couple meals, they were able to ration bologna, sausage, and bread, and then Luckily, reinforcements from a nearby town brought in food. They just couldn't cook anything. The morning of October 5th, a third guard succumbed to his injuries. That was the older guard, W.M. Gilbert, originally from Breckenridge County. Back at the prison, authorities were starting to suspect that one or two of the men barricaded in the dining hall were dead. They thought one was definitely still alive. And this was, you know, two full days in. And things got even spicier that day. It was a Friday. Because they started to realize, quote, 
the entire town of Eddyville and the majority of the buildings within the prison walls could be placed in total darkness by the prisoners if they were to place an iron bar across two wires located in the barricaded building. The darkness would not only hinder residents of Eddyville, but also hinder the work of preventing the escape of the prisoners. So yeah, the entire town was powered by a plant at the prison and the circuit for most of the buildings in town was in this dining hall. Luckily, it appeared the three barricaded men were not privy to that information. Uh, the town had also closed public schools in the area and farmers were out walking the streets with guns. Children were not allowed to play outside. The city was definitely on lockdown. To further complicate matters, after they had initially cleared Mrs. Walters of bringing in the weapons, right, the president of a Paducah bank contacted authorities and informed them that Mrs. Walters had been with a man who she introduced as her brother, a Mr. Mathis, at the bank just a couple weeks before the attempted escape and they had cashed a check for $400. And then later that day, the banker saw Mrs. Walters and this man at a restaurant, and she was on the phone, and the banker overheard her saying, yes, he got it and everything looks fine. Could be nothing, could be something. So on October 6th, she was arrested and detained. She had already made it back to Louisville, so she was arrested in Louisville. When she was questioned, <laughs> she did not do a good job of explaining what that $400 was for, so they held her on a charge of aiding and abetting. One um, other detail I found kind of interesting was that the prison housed a barber shop that was for inmates, but also apparently residents of the town of Eddyville used that barber shop. And so there was an article in the paper about how businessmen from town were getting frustrated because they couldn't go in and get their shave or their haircut. So there were a bunch of men walking around the town of Eddyville all scruffy and unshaven that week. <laughs> I, I love that that made it in the papers. Now, the following day, um, authorities are convinced now that two men are still alive in the dining hall. There's, they think there's been some activity. So that's when they devised a plan to run gas pipes from nearby buildings and flood the building with ammonia. They had to stock up on ammonia from the Paducah Ice Manufacturing Company. And while they were working out the logistics of this plan, which also involved tear gas and grenades, the power went out. The goofy thing about this is that there had been no return fire for a while, so it occurred to the guards that it was probably their own gunfire that severed cables that conveyed electricity not only to the main building of the prison, but also most of the town. That was kind of the tipping point that made them realize, you know, we keep inundating this building with gunfire and tear gas and grenades, and nothing is happening. Maybe we should, maybe it's time to go in and see if anybody's alive in there. The front page of the Sunday edition of the Lexington Herald Leader that week read, Fortress is tomb for three rebel convicts. Walters, Griffith, and Furland found dead by soldiers. Former has bullet wound through the head, body, badly scorched by grenade. 
Companions lie with arms folded as if they had been laid out. Latter pair may have killed selves to prevent capture. Battle of Eddyville is over. And the, the thing that stands out in this article is that it's believed that those men may have been dead for more than two days. It hadn't been confirmed yet by any prison physicians or anything, but that was the speculation. And the real, really strange thing was the way Griffith and Furland were found, right? Quote, Griffith and Furland, with their shirts pulled down, were found with their heads under tables against the northeast wall with bullet holes through their hearts. They were lying with their arms folded as if they had been laid out. Furland gripped a blue steel revolver of 38 caliber, while there was evidence of powder burns about the wounds over the hearts. So there was some initial debate over whether these two committed suicide or if Walters shot them, maybe wanted to make it look like suicide for some reason. Um, they also had their shoes off and a newspaper was partially covering Furland's face. And when the prison physicians got there, they determined, yes, they all have been dead for quite some time, but those two had been dead longer than Mr. Walters. So Tex outlived the other two. The only guns they found were two pistols, the one in Furland's hand, one near uh, Griffith's body, and a meager supply of ammunition. That was it. That, that was all the, the weapons they had. No weapons were recovered anywhere near Tex Walter's body. And then it came out just a little while later that the doctors decided for sure that Griffith and Furland had officially died by suicide. So that's six deaths in total, three convicts, three guards. The fourth injured guard, Gillahan, was still recovering in the hospital. Soon electricity was restored and the warden announced, quote, he would give all prisoners a holiday as soon as the institution restores normal operations after its ordeal. All of the men will be turned out and allowed a day of leisure as a reward for their exemplary conduct during the siege. The warden expressed appreciation for the loyal obedience given by the men throughout the fighting. Unfortunately, they had gone through with the ammonia attack before they found out all the men had been dead a while. And the wind apparently carried that ammonia all over town, where people were coughing and choked up all day. Mrs. Walters, still held in Louisville, was informed of her husband's death. She told police she had no money but really wanted his body sent to Louisville to be buried, and they had to tell her that the body was in no condition to travel. Um, they just couldn't transport him. So she agreed to let the body remain at the prison for burial. Authorities learn, unclear exactly how at this point, that weapons and ammunition were tossed over the prison walls the night before the escape. And it appeared Mrs. Walters had nothing to lose now that her husband was dead. She started talking. And before I tell you what she said, I should mention the men left messages in the dining hall before they died. So Tex had written on prison stationery a letter to his wife, Lillian, that read in part, quote, I am wounded and surrounded by guards. Goodbye. 
I know you will be surprised. Love to you, my beloved. I think he very strategically included that I know you will be surprised part to make it seem to authorities like she, you know, had no idea in the world that they were going to do this. Lawrence Griffith wanted to make one point very clear before he died. He carved a message into the back of a wooden bench near where he was found, and it seemed like he was continuing to add messages as time passed because it's signed like over and over again. There's one little message and then another one, and it said things like, Remember, you didn't kill us all, killed ourselves, defiance from the dead. Another one said, Lawrence Griffith, I killed the cell house fellow and Killahan, tried my goddamnedest to kill blank as he went in the hospital. They couldn't quite make out the names there and he, he spelled wrong a lot of the things. So it was hard to read, but it was clear that he really wanted to go out with people knowing, you know, he... He was shooting to kill, and and he was a tough guy. And yes, like I mentioned, this was the day that Lillian Walters was ready to come clean. She looked at a jailer and said, quote, I'm ready to tell, I helped text, and I planned it all. She spent the next five hours talking to the jailers. She revealed that initially it was only Tex and Lawrence Griffith who intended to escape. She figured at the last minute they must have just handed Harry Furland a pistol and said, hey, come on. The plan was to climb a drain pipe to the top of the death house where old Sparky was and then just hop over. She revealed a little bit about her relationship with Tex. Quote, I had known Tex for five years, but before that his life is a blank to me. Two years ago, we went to Mason County where Tex got a job on a farm and tried to go straight. Then something came up and we returned to Louisville and committed that murder. I had just $19 left when we returned to Louisville. Police had also learned by now that the weapons were purchased by a black man in Cairo, Illinois. It's unclear if she told them this or if it was their own police work. Um, That man was now believed to be on the run and Then this same article also said, quote, they were smuggled into the prison by another Negro who was under surveillance and hidden in a tunnel. This story of who was involved kind of changes over time. But what we do know is that the man with Lillian at the bank that day was now believed to be a recently released convict named Jim Sparks. So definitely not Lillian's brother. Lillian admitted that during that last meeting at the prison with her husband, you know, the one where guards insisted they heard every word of it, she was informing Tex that the weapons were in place and ready whenever he was. Lillian Walters was incredibly devoted and loyal to her husband. She explained that any loyal wife would have done exactly what she did. Remember, he was 11 years older. She was in her early 20s. He was in his 30s. One guard was able to give an example of this loyalty from the last time Tex tried to escape and was shot by a guard. Lillian was in the hospital with him and Tex was encouraging her to leave, to move on since he was undoubtedly spending life in prison. And according to this guard, she pointed to a role of adhesive and said, quote, I'll stick to you just like that would Guards were also able to reveal a bit more about Tex. 
Aside from the escape attempts, he was actually a good prisoner. He was quiet. He mostly read and kept to himself. He had a passion for psychology books, especially those dealing with development of the will. But he also cussed a lot and told them often that he had no faith in God or man. They also said that because Lillian Walters presented herself as such a refined and proper woman, they allowed her to visit with her husband for longer periods than the rules stipulated. As his nickname implied, investigators thought Tex was originally from San Antonio, Texas. He wrote on his prison intake form that his parents were dead, but later in letters to Lillian, he told her to make sure his parents didn't know he was in a place like this, implying they were still alive and would maybe be ashamed of his current state. He had been in trouble for a long time, in and out of prisons around the region over the years for a variety of offenses. Something else investigators learned was that the two accomplices were younger than previously believed. Tex was in his 30s, but Lawrence Griffith was only 24 years old and Harry Furland was only 22. Now, another interesting thing here, remember I said there was no gun found near Walter's body? Well, according to the first officer on the scene, they did see a weapon near Tex Walter's head. But later, as they're going over this crime scene, the weapon can't be found. It is missing. And so they realize that some law enforcement officer, whether it was a guard or um, one of the National Guardsmen or whatever, somebody took that gun as a trophy. And then I guess it wasn't that big of a deal because instead of, I don't know, keeping them for evidence, they gave the other two weapons used by the escapees to two Hopkinsville militiamen, who were two of the first on the scene, as keepsakes. Another soldier took Walter's gold watch, and even another took the coins out of Griffith's pockets. I would love to know where the guns are now. I mean, surely some family member still has those. I wonder if they even know like what they have. So the bodies of Tex Walters and Harry Furland were buried in the prison cemetery the morning of October 8th. Griffith's family demanded he be returned to his farm in Dresden, Tennessee. He had a 24-year-old widow there. By that afternoon, the prison physician said with certainty that he believed all the prisoners barricaded in the dining hall were dead within the first 24 hours. So for days, the guards and militiamen were firing, tear gassing, throwing grenades at nothing. Of course, this led several people, including residents of the town who lived in fear for days, to question why they didn't just storm the building sooner. Three guys versus all those guards. It was a valid question. But the warden was adamant that he just wasn't willing to risk any more lives. He'd already lost three men, and that was three too many. He knew there was no way out for these men. They just had to play the waiting game. So now that authorities had this confession from Mrs. Walters, they wanted to put her on trial, obviously, but they decided to give it some time, hoping that they could apprehend the accomplices, um, believed to be Jim Sparks, of course, and a man named Hawkins. Hawkins. 
a newspaper reported on October 10th that Tex Walters appeared to be a bigamist. There were rumors that he and his first wife, from Iowa, had murdered a man in Colorado. Authorities just weren't able to prove it. Also, he did have parents. His mom was in Iowa with his stepdad. And his real name was Chester. Chester Walters, born in Iowa, not Texas. His dad died when he was young. He went to jail for the first time for burglary when he was around 14 years old. Then he went to Texas, shot someone, went to prison, eventually went back to Iowa, and that's when he got married the first time. And as far as we know, there was no record indicating he ever divorced his first wife. As the days passed, Lillian Walters continued to reveal details of her and Texas relationship. And what may have seemed romantic to her at the time seems very much like an extremely inappropriate and manipulative relationship. She met Tex when she was 14 years old and he was 25 and she left home to be with him. On October 18th, they found Jim Sparks, the accomplice, in the hometown of Tex Walters in Iowa. This was huge for law enforcement because the public was starting to get antsy about Mrs. Walters not being held accountable. They wanted to see her put on trial. Her role in the death of these three guards was significant and she had confessed that she planned the whole thing. They couldn't wait any longer. They really didn't need to. So Mrs. Lillian Walters was taken to Paducah and arraigned before County Judge C.J. Gresham on a charge of accessory to murder. She waived her right to an examining trial and would be held without bond at the McCracken County Jail until her grand jury hearing in December. Jim Sparks admitted his guilt and was held at Eddyville. He was 24 years old. According to jailers, Lillian Walters was fairly calm as she awaited her trial. She seemed more concerned with having Tex's body disinterred and moved to his hometown in Iowa. She still hadn't said anything about knowing he may have had a first wife, other than she said she had no knowledge. She also told reporters that she would like to move to his hometown in Iowa and be with his family if she ever got out of this. Mrs. Walters was young, and she sounded naive, and the press sort of took it upon themselves to give her some leniency in the weeks leading up to her trial. They really gave her the benefit of the doubt, often by referring to her in terms like, quote, the pretty young widow, and talking about the good things she does by continuing to hide the name of her parents so as not to disgrace them publicly. It's very strange, like, I get it. She's like a young woman, but you have to remember she is an adult and she made some terrible decisions. She was receiving gifts in jail. People had sent her flowers, candy. There was a large bowl of fresh fruit at her table in her jail cell. Friends came to visit. She was allowed to entertain as much as she wanted. And I found an amazing tie-in. I'm so excited. If you'll recall from the episode where Mrs. Wagner bombed the house of the young pregnant wife and children, the accomplice from that episode, Emma Skillian, was Lillian Walters' cellmate. On December 5th, Lillian was indicted on three counts, accessory to murder before the fact, for each guard that died. She confessed again during her indictment, 
but would plead not guilty, as advised by her attorney, C.J. Grasham. His name might be C.C. Grasham. It changes in in various articles. Um, The argument would be that she was coerced by her husband and didn't really have a choice in the matter. Her trial began on December 10th. The state was seeking the death penalty. It was attended by three to 400 curious onlookers. 100 jurymen were summoned. She was three hours late. 60 witnesses were called. Jim Sparks testified that he was made the scapegoat in this whole thing and that all the planning and weapons procuring, that was all done by Mrs. Walters. She wore a long black coat, which she, quote, drew around her throat as if shivering from cold when she went on the stand. She testified that her husband had exerted a hypnotic spell over her on five or six occasions. He would tell her she was getting sleepier and sleepier. And then she would go into a hypnotized state where she would see a baby. She apparently had a baby that died in infancy. And so she told the court that she begged him over and over not to try to escape, but he was adamant and said she was the only one who could help him. So she had to and she was completely under his spell. Lillian Walters explained to the court how they had purchased the guns in Illinois, but Tex had assured her that they weren't actually going to have to use them. She was on the stand for about 45 minutes, Mary Ellen Cunningham, wife of one of the murdered guards, watched this testimony from the front row with her 10-year-old son in her lap. The Courier-Journal reporter uh, who worked on this trial mentioned that Lillian was better dressed than Mrs. Cunningham, the widow, and they referred to Lillian as the pretty young widow again. Jim Sparks was given a continuance until May so they could see how Mrs. Walter's trial would play out. December 11th, the jury began deliberations, couldn't come to an agreement, picked back up on the second morning, and there was so much anticipation because, especially from people, you know, lawyers in the state of Kentucky, anyone who studied the law, because her attorney's argument was based on the idea that she was not acting of her own free will, that she was coerced and under this hypnotizing spell, as she put it, Um, by her husband, and that was an argument that had not been in the Kentucky judicial system very often, if at all. So um, the jury was hung. They revealed they were eight for life, five for acquittal. No one was even considering the death penalty. So she was taken back to the uh, McCracken County Jail, and bond was set at $6,000. In March of 1924, bills were passed to give each of the widows of the murdered guards $4,000. And Lillian's second trial was set for May, and it was actually set for the same day as Jim Sparks' trial. The morning of the start of her second trial, the Owensboro Messenger Inquirer referred to Mrs. Walters again as the pretty young widow. There was a lot of sympathy for her in the papers, which was kind of a shift from people initially wanting her held accountable. 
The Owensboro Messenger wrote, quote, ground in the mill of an hour's unrelenting cross-examination, Mrs. Lillian Walters, 22-year-old widow of Monty Tex Walters, wilted as she left the witness stand in Lyon Circuit Court this afternoon and fell weeping into the arms of her father. She collapsed after an hour and 25 minutes on the witness stand, the greater part of which she had spent under a grueling questioning by attorney Denny Smith of Hazard, Kentucky. She was found innocent on the first count against her on May 10th. She would face two more charges and they they separated each accessory charge out into different trials so that she might get convicted for at least one of them, right? Um, But as far as Mrs. Cunningham, the widow, there would be no justice for the murder of her husband. Meanwhile, Jim Sparks' trial is continued again till October, so a year after the uh, escape attempt. This time, while Lillian Walters was awaiting trial, she did get out on bond, and she was supposed to go to trial just a week later, but by August, months later, she's still out and about. She was spending her time between Louisville and Paducah. She was waitressing at the Metropolitan Restaurant in Louisville. She even went to Iowa to visit her in-laws. Quote, Mrs. Walters looks better than when she left Paducah. She has bobbed her thick, dark hair, and she is brighter and happier. I'm sure the guards' widows loved reading that. Um, And then they got to read that the upcoming trials were postponed to December. In an article from the Owensboro Messenger in August, detailing the comeback being made by Lillian, she's actually described as a heroine. This young, pretty woman was getting let off the hook by the public, by the press, by everyone, it seemed, except the state. They decided to charge her with accessory before the fact in the case of the fourth guard who was shot but survived. They thought maybe this would have a better chance of a conviction because the penalty would be less severe since the man survived. I'd like to remind you guys at this point that just a few years before this happened, Mrs. Walters was involved in the burglary gone wrong that resulted in the death of Alex Erler. The taxi driver told police that Mrs. Lillian Walters was holding a pistol to his head while the others robbed the dairyman. And the only reason she wasn't tried in that case was because they made a deal with Tex that if he confessed, she would get off the hook. That's what Mrs. Walters was up to before she orchestrated the plan to smuggle weapons to her husband in prison. And don't forget, in between, she smuggled saws into the prison so he could try to escape again. Just a little reminder. Now, in November of 1924, her next trial got deferred to May of 1925. Remember, she's out on bond this whole time. Her next trial was supposed to begin on May 7th, 1925, but she didn't show up. A signed affidavit from two Paducah physicians were grounds enough to postpone her trial. The state begged the court to increase bond or issue a bench warrant, but the request was denied. She was sick, according to her doctors, quote, in a highly nervous condition. Amazing. So her trial got postponed again to August. 
on August 24, 1925, almost two years after the escape attempt, Mrs. Walters was once again acquitted of the charge against her. In stark contrast with the way Lillian Walters' trials were going, Jim Sparks, the man she was running all around with, making these plans, procuring the weapons, she was seen with him in public several times, he was easily convicted in his trial and sentenced to time in Eddyville. And just so there's no confusion with what I'm about to read you, I believe Jim Sparks was an alias and his real name was Kelland Knudsen. So this article was, it's like a letter to the editor. It was written by a citizen of Paducah who wrote into the paper the day after Jim Sparks was convicted. It made me feel a little better to know that um, people were thinking what I'm thinking now back when this happened. It says, this is not justice, but it is typical of the way of male juries with female offenders. Unless the woman be particularly vile and unprepossessing, it seems almost impossible for a jury of men to work themselves into the state of mind where they can deal out justice according to the logic of the law and evidence. The average man, and juries are made up of that type, is utterly incapable of dealing logically with a woman offender. The charms of a young and comely woman or of an old woman, if she have a motherly exterior, even if she happens to be a regular harpy, can make the average man sitting on a jury forget the seriousness of murder or of theft or of almost any other crime. The truth of the matter is, of course, that human beings are not controlled so much by their minds as by their emotions, and woman is the one instrument especially designed to play upon the emotions of men. Hence, woman is a law unto herself. If Kelland Knudsen is of a philosophical turn of mind, he will do a good deal of thinking on the queer ways of the world, especially the inconsistencies of law and human nature, while he is serving out his 12 months in Eddyville. I thought that was pretty, pretty good. Now, Lillian Walter's fourth trial was scheduled for mid-December 1925, but her timing is impeccable. She had an operation for appendicitis on December 2nd, and she still wasn't recovered enough to stand trial, so her next trial was continued again to May of 1926. On May 6th, she was found not guilty again. After that, she started going by her maiden name, Lillian Manger, she was a socialite in Louisville, attending parties, often in the papers. For all that loyalty and devotion, she moved on pretty quickly. She gave birth to a daughter, Margaret Ada West, in September of 1928. By the early 1930s, Lillian had remarried. She was now Mrs. Lillian West. She had two children. She was living in Newcastle, Indiana. And that's all I can find about her. I've got nothing after that. The 1923 Eddyville prison escape attempt lasted 81 hours. Six people died. Lillian Walters admitted multiple times, including on the stand, to orchestrating the plan 
and she never faced the consequences of her actions. Even factoring in the reality that she was 14 years old when Tex Walters entered her life and coaxed her away from her home and her family, she was an adult when they robbed and murdered Alex Erler. She was an adult when she smuggled in saws for Tex's first escape attempt. And she was certainly an adult when she orchestrated the smuggling of weapons into a maximum security prison so that her husband and an accomplice could escape. That last one took a lot of planning, months. She had time to herself in a city hours away from where her husband was incarcerated to think about the decision she was about to make, the possible outcomes. She made the wrong decision and she got away with it, going on to live, as far as I know, a normal, happy life. The end. <laughs> Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, or a rating on Spotify. If you have topic suggestions, email them to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com, especially if there's anything else about Eddieville in particular that you think might be a nice follow-up to this episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts. Find the Facebook page, Kentucky History and Haunts, and the Facebook group, Kentucky History and Haunts, and more. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy holidays.